Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, back to New Books in Education on the New Books Network. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and I'm very excited today uh, for a book that I'm uh, quite personally interested in, and hopefully all of you are as well. Uh, This is Confucius and the Crisis in American Universities, Culture, Welcome, everyone, back to New Books in Education on the New Books Network. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and I'm very excited today uh, for a book that I'm uh, quite personally interested in, and hopefully all of you are as well. Uh, This is Confucius and the Crisis in American Universities, Culture, Capital, and Diplomacy in U.S. Public Higher Education. And this is from Amy Stombach, uh, and it's published out of uh, Rutledge, and uh, it's 2014, so fairly recent uh, book, and this is from a series, Education in Global Context, and uh, Amy does a really nice job of uh, looking at the Confucius Institutes in higher education uh, within the United States, and she looks at uh, several universities and studied them quite closely, and, and it was there, and Uh, kind of embedded herself, and so she has a a great understanding of these institutions, which, uh, you know, every six months to a year seem to pop up on the news or something, and and we see some sort of uh, controversy or story on these institutions. So this is definitely a great book to to really understand uh, the inside um, of the workings of these institutions within the higher education context of the American system. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Amy, thank you. Welcome uh, for coming on. And uh, if we can just begin, uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you sort of got here intellectually and maybe just you know how you got into China, Confucius Institutes, and uh, higher education as well? Thank you. Sure. Well, first of all, Ryan, thank you very much for having me on this, this show. The series you're doing is really an asset for uh, education studies, so I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, you introduced the book by um, suggesting that I'm uh, a scholar of China studies, and I want to begin by saying uh, I am new to the area of China studies, and I don't consider myself a China expert. Anything that I've learned in the way of China, I have Uh, gained largely from this project and uh, working with um, uh, colleagues and scholars who are affiliated with Confucius Institutes uh, in the U.S. So I want to acknowledge that and uh, and them for uh, sharing their knowledge. Um, I uh, am by training an anthropologist. So some couple of decades ago, I began um, conducting field research in probably what was the quintessential field sites at that time, uh, parts of Africa, mm. uh, and at a time when my colleagues, uh, my peers in the 80s and early 90s, way back then, were interested in um, anthropology, and ritual, and kinship, um, uh, medicine, medical anthropology. I was really interested in the start of, uh, in the area of education. And how education, broadly understood, broadly seen to include child-rearing, socialization, and schools, how education serves as a site for the cultivation of communities and of knowledge. And uh, so I began to work from an anthropological perspective on the subject of education uh, for my early work. From my area background in African studies, I moved all the way, if you will, from that to uh, looking at higher education in the U.S. Mm -hmm. This particular book um, is what I consider to be an ethnographic study of um, higher education institutions in the U.S. 
um, written from an anthropological perspective and drawing on some of what I feel are anthropological contributions to the way we might see higher education uh, around the world, but in this case particularly in the U.S. So as an Africanist anthropologist, I found myself uh, oddly in the position of writing this book on higher education in the United States. Um, I became uh, interested in this topic specifically through some um, wonderful administrative work that I was doing uh, in my former university, the University of Wisconsin, with which I continue to ma maintain an affiliation. Um, I had been a director of global studies and was quite um, uh, aware of where China fit in on the landscape of U.S. higher education. People are keen, parents are keen to have their children learn Chinese, where it was Japanese 10 years ago, perhaps uh, China seems to be on everyone's radar screen right now. So I became, became very interested in um, sort of how in the higher education arena, China figured into a U.S. cultural imaginary, if you will. So here's African anthropologists looking at culture in America, um, uh, trying to understand how China figures into a U.S. higher education landscape. Okay, fantastic. And so you, you, know, you mentioned... Um, your sort of uh, Midwest roots in Wisconsin. Um, can you can you maybe mention, I guess, two things? Uh, maybe explain to, to our audience uh, what a Confucius Institute is, or, or, or what what kind of organization that is, and then explain the the universities which you sort of embedded yourself with as as you were uh, making this study. Um, if you could if you could introduce those universities. Sure. Confucius Institutes are a very interesting um, language and cultural school uh, that's uh, sponsored by the Ministry of Education, and it's one of its um, sort of uh, assets or institutions, the Hanban. Um, it, it, the Hanban and Ministry of Education have um, reached out, if you will, to countries around the world beginning in 2005. Um, uh, offering, uh, to put it in, a, in the Hanban language, offering the opportunity for universities to draw on resources from the government of China to teach Chinese language and culture within universities around the world. Mm -hmm. So in uh, 2014, there are more than 300 Confucius Institutes funded by the government of China operating in universities around the world, not only in the United States, but in, in many, many countries. Um, Confucius Institutes are unique in that they are located typically, and I'll just speak of the typical case, they're located typically within universities uh, themselves. They are not separate language schools offered through embassies or cultural attaché offices, as are uh, the British Council or uh, uh, the French uh, language schools. Rather, Confucius Institutes um, are unique in that they are set up within uh, universities themselves. The controversy surrounding that, you would use the word embedded in a way, there, it can, uh, the controversy surrounding the embeddedness of Confucius Institutes within universities is uh, they begin to... Um, challenge to some and open opportunities to others for new kinds of thinking about what a border is uh, between universities and the um, nation state, basically. And so some of the issues that I bring up in the book are about um, uh, ways in which Confucius Institutes are um, uh, both seen as uh, opportunities and debates. So Confucius Institutes are language schools or language courses that are offered within universities around the world. These institutes are funded through the um, government of China. They are created through a contract with the host university. So in the United States, for instance, uh, a host university will uh, contract with a partner university in China and with the government of China, Hanban, or Ministry of Education. So each university has a partnership with a Chinese university, um, and the um, courses that Confucius Institutes offer are typically not for credit courses. That's not always the case, and, and we're seeing some more discussion about uh, for credit classes. But the way Confucius Institutes began in 2005 uh, and until recently in the main, they were not for credit classes offered 
uh, within universities, teaching Chinese language at various levels, teaching uh, arts and culture, to some extent history, some of the controversies surrounding uh, the, uh, the um, Confucius Institutes uh, in various universities has to do with what and how they are teaching. So I hope that uh, addresses yeah. the, the question. What are Confucius Institutes? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think you, you kind of touched on it exactly, sort of the, the controversial bit, because it is funded from the Chinese government and sort of things with you know, academic integrity and freedom and things like that. Um, so if you could maybe introduce the schools, that uh, the universities that you, uh, that you were sort of uh, with during, during the study. Sure, I'd be glad to do that. If, you, if I could just first say a bit more about um, Confucius Institutes and the way they've been studied and then how this work um, tries to approach it in a, in a different way. Absolutely. I think that's you know, uh, uh, one of the highlights of the book, sort of different direction that it, that it has taken in some of its analysis. Okay, yeah, I hope it does. I hope it's a complimentary and, um, and adds something to the conversation. Much of the um, discussion and uh, writing about Confucius Institute has been about uh, Confucius Institutes as a form of Chinese soft, Chinese soft power, analogous to the kind of soft power we might see in the Fulbright program from the U.S. or uh, British Council English language programs. Um, and that certainly is uh, an argument that I'm not disputing in this um, in this work. But what I'm interested in doing in this very short ethnography, which I hope is written for a general audience and, there, and therefore is accessible, what I hope to do in this work is to show that there it's a two-way street. Um, there's uh, a reason that institutions take up Confucius Institutes. Um, there's a, a in a sense a I draw on my, my former teacher, Marshall Sullins, this structure of conjuncture. There is uh, a two-sided uh, direction to the road, and it meets at a particular point. And what I try to do in this work is discuss what that intersection is and why U.S. Um, universities are taking up the Confucius Institutes. And the reasons have to do with um, cuts in higher education and arguments that universities and administration in particular make to their stakeholders about the need for new funding. And China, the government of China, offers some degree of new funding for foreign language, Chinese language, that has been cut. Um, I argue in this work that that's not the only, nor even the sole reason uh, that universities in the U.S. that I'm studying uh, take up uh, Confucius Institutes. There are also uh, diplomatic reasons for working with uh, colleagues and universities around the world. And for better or for worse, I coined the phrase, I think it's a coin of a phrase, uh, eduplomacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Universities, um, and others have, have written about this too, uh, universities are diplomatic sites, sites not only for the education of the next generation and, t- and skills training, but there's um, a, a lot of diplomacy and uh, connection among countries that goes on through the research and teaching missions of the university. And so I talk about the ways in which U.S. Uh, these institutions come at Confucius Institutes with a logic of their own uh, not putting aside arguments about soft power, I'm not, I'm not discounting them, but um, there's more than, than, than that, I'm arguing. Uh, so I find that the soft power argument is not sufficient for, for understanding the full uptake that we see of Confucius Institutes in these uh, universities. Now, you asked me uh, to introduce the universities themselves. Um, the, uh, the, the, this is an ethnography, and so what I try to do, in addition to showing that conjuncture of interests, I try also to give a human face uh, to the Confucius Institutes, not only of teachers, but also of the students, U.S. students in the main, who come to the institutions. Uh, the institutions that I feature in this work are a particular kind. They are public U.S. higher education institutions. They're public institutions, not the private so-called elite institutions of the U.S. And the public institution here is key because they have been subject to cuts in funding, congressional cuts in funding beginning about 2012, cuts for foreign languages and international training for our students, our students uh, in the world, as you will, if you will. Um, so the public universities uh, have um, been 
subject to uh, these cuts and have been affected more greatly than the privates um, by the, uh, the, the decline in funding. And so the argument, at any rate, is stronger in the public higher education institutions that um, Confucius Institutes will provide a new funding stream. Again, that's not a sufficient argument, but that is one argument that the publics are making. It's a whole different game at play that I'm not, uh, I haven't studied um, in the private institutions um, with regard to Confucius Institutes. So another point that I should make is the, um, the settings of these um, Confucius Institutes that I'm looking at are not uh, coastal settings. Um, the U.S. has regions, regional orientations, and I think it's, it's important to um, note that the, uh, the the country is large, and a lot of higher education arguments focus on coasts. And the western and eastern east coast of the U.S. have uh, particular orientations, if you will, to the Pacific Rim uh, or to other um, financial hubs, uh, particularly from the east coast uh, institutions through alumni networks. There are many institutions, higher ed institutions in the states that do not have those kind of networks and yet have been recipients of federal funds uh, and have faced these kinds of cuts and therefore make arguments about the value of Chinese money for foreign language, for Chinese language study. Right. And I, I think, you know, that's a, a, another good point of the book that I think I mentioned sort of highlighting different analysis that we haven't seen, really talking about funding these, the funding that comes from the institutions uh, are actually, you know, they're being sought out because uh, domestic policy, which sometimes we don't get into when we're thinking of international education policy. So that's really a great connection, I think. Well, that's interesting that you put it that way, because yes, there is an intersection everywhere mm -hmm. of domestic and international policy. And sometimes international studies, particularly in the States, is all about everything except the U.S. Right. And so we need to look at that nexus again of U.S. and international, uh, the changing international mm -hmm. landscape. China has been uh, almost, um, uh, it, it's interesting how, how much China has featured in the U.S. imaginary, um, you know, larger than life. I don't know if anything is possible <laughs> larger than life, but there, there's definitely uh, an enthusiasm that we've seen in U.S. higher education for working with China uh, that's come up in the last five five years, certainly, and Confucius Institutes play into that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so if we can we can keep keep moving along, uh, you you have three universities, um, which uh, which you uh, have talked about. Uh, if you can let us know, you know, sort of how you chose those universities, or at least like maybe sort of how you made the connections with those universities, and then um, if you want to get into, so we we can kind of start talking about sort of what what are these Confucius Institutes doing uh, on on the campuses and, and specifically. What, there are a lot of language teaching is a part of the Confucius Institutes. Uh, how are they teaching uh, Mandarin language? Uh, what are, I know you talk about sort of ideology within that, within, within um, the language teaching. So if you can um, kind of talk about uh, um, the language aspect uh, from these things. Sure. I'll answer your first question just briefly first. How did I select these um, institutions? They all uh, represent that public uh, higher education um, research and teaching oriented uh, university mm -hmm. um, that are uh, the majority and not the exceptions <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that much of the research has focused on. Um, I uh, inquired with the administrators as to uh, what, whether I might approach the institutions in um, the institutions I did enroll in um, Chinese language classes and you refer to the word embedded I like to think of it as anthropology and, and ethnography and embedded is very open kind of embedment um, because the um, the research was done uh, in a, a way in which the students and the teachers um, and the administrators um, including the US and the China directors um, were um, quite aware of and so it was a very um, I don't know, embed, embedded, it, it, sure, so it was participant, uh, participatory and observational, oh. so in anthropological sense, it was the participant observation mm -hmm. um, that I felt was an important methodology to bring to the, um, the project, and that meant that I could complement interviews and other research about Confucius Institutes with 
some of my own experience as to what was going on as a student and then also as a researcher who would observe uh, observe and also interview the, the students and teachers afterwards. So um, the methodology involved participation, observation, interview, uh, analysis of primary documents associated with the three universities. I would say that the three universities, I did not engage with them uh, in terms of time in an equal manner. Mm -hmm. uh, just life, as it will, um, didn't permit it. Um, in the wonderful days of graduate student life, when we do field research for extended periods of time, that's uh, that's really a, a treasure. But at this particular stage of my career, I wasn't um, able to actually take uh, termly or semester-long classes in each one of uh, the, the institutions equally. Um, nonetheless, the, um, the kinds of curricula and the textbooks that that were being used were comparable in different places uh, and site visits and interviews and observations helped to um, to sort of put these three um, these these three uh, institutions into complementary perspective um, you asked me about how language is taught in uh, in Confucius institutes well I found that um, in, in some classrooms Chinese teachers uh, teachers of Chinese who were from China, um, at worst, were not uh, able to reach out as much as they would have liked to a wide student pool. Mm -hmm. So the students who came to class uh, were often self-selected and had particular interests that the secondary literature on Confucius Institutes alone would not have predicted for me. So it was really sort of the uh, idiosyncratic interest of individuals coming to learn the language, and they learned students learned language with, with special interests, so the vocabulary that's taught was often particular to the interests of students. In chapter three of the book, I focus on what's taught in a Confucius Institute classroom, and I use the framework that a colleague of mine, Stanton Wortham at UPenn and others, drawing on many others, uh, divides into language use, language form, language ideology, and language domain. I look at language use, which is literally what's being taught phonetically and grammatically in the textbooks. And I look at how that teaching plays out in the classroom. Uh, language form has uh, to do with sort of how teachers teach the context for correct usage. So it's not just the grammar, what you say, but you know how you say it and inflect it in a particular context. Uh, language ideology has to do with more implicit of what teachers are teaching, not how they're explicitly teaching about the cultural context. But I find, I mean, ideology sounds like it's a big sort of conspiracy thing of state state ideology. But really what I'm talking about are the beliefs the, the um, that people bring to the use of language that they're not aware of until they begin to speak the language. And uh, there are numerous examples in the book. You may you may be able to pull one or two out more easily than I can because there are so many that I, I work with. Uh, so the context that, that people realize and discover through the classroom of what the language means that they would not have thought of otherwise. One of the issues that came up for students, U.S. students, American students, for uh, some of the classrooms was um, were languages of words for holidays. Um, International Women's Day was uh, something that was very much part of the Chinese uh, um, uh, discourse of, of education, and yet from a U.S. perspective, the idea of a U.N.-recognized holiday that recognizes international women was not something that American students were generally familiar with. Um, other more stereotypic for U.S., for Americans, and other more stereotypic examples might be the Maoist uh, star, excuse me. Um, so some some calligraphy classes. Uh, I studied not only language classes, but also calligraphy and uh, paper cutting classes as well. Calligraphy classes or paper cutting classes will often evoke signs and symbols that teachers and students would read in different ways. Um, one, I'll just bring an anecdote in one uh, way in which language evoked a sense of meaning that students didn't quite uh, realize they, they shared with the teachers was the Maoists star, I'm having trouble saying that, and, and the teacher herself was quite uh, reminiscent about how as a, a child in school in China, you know, this was was something that they they cut and, and uh, um, sort of was part of the everyday life. For students in the U.S. universities, it was uh, initially appalling or shocking, you know, one could read in, in the way they reacted with that, that this was a, a sort of a Maoist communist star in the in the classroom, and they use that object, if you will, to come uh, to uh, a discussion about uh, a bit about history.
Okay, and, and that's a that's a great uh, segue because I was just about to ask you one of my favorite parts of the book is when you are describing the the history class, the five thousand years of history in I think it was like a ninety minute period. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that because it's it's a uh, it's such a fantastic sort of uh, just encompassing tale of, of sort of maybe the idea of conducive. Enjoyed that. That's that's chapter two, where I deal with history in lots of different ways in one chapter. Uh, but the the end of that chapter um, uh, presents history as it was taught in a Confucius class at one of these universities. One, as you say, ninety minute session, approximately, I suppose, uh, where the teacher covered thousands of years of history for a, an audience crammed into the classroom. Um, who had never had a class on Chinese history. Now, uh, on the one hand, they're learning a lot, or they're being exposed to a lot uh, in a university that uh, wasn't at the time, I don't know if it is now, wasn't at the time teaching history, Chinese history for credit. Uh, on the other hand, they're learning a lot slide by slide, very quickly, of information that they are being taught rather didactically. Um, they're not engaged in an inquiry-oriented mode the way students in most history classes in the U.S. would be engaged over a semester, at least long time, to understand that kind of history. So um, the students who were in that history class uh, were there for a particular reason. They were offered extra credit to sit in on that class. Um, and so they, it was an evening class, they were quite quiet. No one had questions at the end. Uh, there were a few questions from older adult students who were not themselves university students, just asking about tourist sites and so on. Uh, the, the university students themselves, who were there for extra credit, um, I have to put a personal commentary in here. I was quite sad that they didn't ask more questions. Um, uh, I think that, that might point to a uh, missed opportunity on their part and maybe even on the part of their university professors um, who might encourage uh, more direct questioning and even preparation going into those kinds of, of lecture classes where students could learn something from a, uh, a Chinese professor, a professor from China. Uh, after all, it is professors from China who staff the Confucius Institutes. So I was um, interested to see that at the end of the session, the university students asked the scholar from China to simply sign their extra credit form uh, rather than right. you know, engage and ask questions. Um, nonetheless, the exposure that they had in that one session, um, it's hard to argue against it. It's, one might say better than nothing. Others might say, no, it's not better than nothing. Um, but I, 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 I tend to myself think it's better than nothing, but it certainly is a missed opportunity to engage with a China a scholar from China. Okay, very nice, and like I said, it's it's uh, a very uh, sort of you know informative yet I think kind of funny like. Tale. Oh. Uh, I I definitely enjoyed it. Maybe as someone who's who's studied some history in the past, and I can sort of understand sort of you know where do you begin with five thousand years of history? So. Um, Maybe also where, where students begin, who are listening to lectures of, of that kind as well, at least as we, you know, sort of begin to, begin to think of history as something that we really need to, you know, understand through inquiry. Uh, but let me just say one more thing. I see you want to move on to another topic. But uh, one more thing on that is the, the lesson that's conveyed in that section of Chapter 2 is not untypical, which is to say it's typical of the, kind of the history classes that are taught uh, in other Confucius Institutes. Not everywhere. I mean, I need to qualify that, you know, I've since, you know, I understand that there's, but there's a range of what's taught in Confucius Institutes, but the lesson itself uh, was a, a, um, a template, if you will, that's taught elsewhere as well. Okay, fantastic. Uh, if you can kind of talk about, you know, who these people who are running the Confucius Institute, working there, the administrators, uh, sort of what what are their sort of expectations for for the program for the organization, and how does that kind of fit into the, the overall uh, goals of the Confucius Institutes in general? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, the there are different um, uh, administrators, if you will, in the Confucius Institutes. There are U.S. side or host university in, uh, administrators, and then administrators who are coming from the partner university in China, uh, those Chinese administrators or 
administrators in China uh, are professors typically of their subject. They may not be teaching, they may not be professors of Chinese language, they may be a professor of archaeology or a professor of history or, or something, but it is uh, a combination of administrators of U.S. side and China-based scholars. In the classroom itself, um, the teachers are the visiting scholars from China. Um, they are uh, academics, they are have been hired into an administrative post um, to come to the U.S. They are in the U.S. mainly, and there are exceptions to this, so let me just qualify that I'm really speaking generally, uh, mainly on a visiting scholar visa. So on the campuses where they are working, they are recognized not as university employees in that university, but rather they are visiting scholars from partner universities in China who are offering classes, non-credit generally, for anyone who wants to come to the Confucius Institute. Um, like uh, administrators everywhere, uh, administrators are accountable to many stakeholders. Uh, so the Chinese scholars who are working in Confucius Institutes are accountable to their home universities and to the employing uh, agencies, if you will, within the Ministry of Education and the government of China. Um, they therefore have to be accountable in terms of numbers of students, quality of, of, of teaching. They themselves face, uh, and I, I want to say this you know, because anthropology tends to be you know, try to understand uh, subjects from subjects' positions, but those administrators from scholars face difficulty gaining traction in U.S. higher education institutions um, because of the different administrative systems that U.S. higher education institutions and Chinese institutions uh, operate by. Um, those China scholars tend to be generally frustrated with U.S. higher education system because it's not um, uh, centralized enough, if you will. Um, the the concern is that they're not able really to do the job that they have been sent to do. On the other side of the coin, U.S. universities operate by typically by shared governance, whereby employees who are pre-tenured and tenured on the basis of their scholarship and publication, it is employees working with administrators and other stakeholders, including students, to determine what the curriculum is. So the China scholars who are coming on a, a J-1 visa or visiting scholars um, are seen as nice visitors in some ways, um, but, but aren't part of, typically part of the governing structure and for reasonable reasons, um, because that governing structure in, in U.S. higher education is designed for uh, a collaborative, um, multi-voiced, if you will, a decision-making process that is not centralized and is not um, top-down, and I think that's certainly one of the, the assets of, of the U.S. system as well. But sometimes it's that um, difference and lack of understanding that the China scholars can't do their job because um, the system doesn't allow them to. Uh, that serves as a, a side of frustration for those scholars. I see. Okay. And as you mentioned, you know, they, they're they here on sort of the you know, visa. They're not really employees. And, and they kind of, and you mentioned in the book a little bit, sort of gotten, gotten in trouble in the past about going out to schools uh, and, and teaching Mandarin language courses in schools as well. And uh, I think you mentioned that uh, in the book that one of the universities just simply stopped all of that and tried to sort of bring in uh, students to the, to the school instead, or uh, was there any sort of um, workaround that they, that they could figure out from there? Or? Yeah, so um, affecting many Confucius Institutes in the U.S., I believe it was 2012, yes, it was 2012, mm -hmm. uh, teachers on visiting scholar visas to the U.S. from China were called in um, for understandable reasons because they had been working in K-12 settings, mm -hmm. and in higher education settings, and when anyone in the U.S. is working in a K-12 setting, one needs to have certain kinds of checks and, and, and you know, particular considerations. Um, the scholars from China who were working in K-12 settings were quite keen to, uh, to, to teach Ch uh, Chinese language, calligraphy, arts and crafts in public school settings, uh, K-12, and indeed these public school teachers and administrators were not averse, perhaps welcoming in some cases, um, to having teachers come in and teach for free 
uh, Chinese language. You know, you have to remember this is a time right now when parents are eager, for whatever reason, uh, to have uh, their children learn Chinese. It's the it's the next best uh, thing because it's you know the economy is, is seen as the as what as what their children where their children are going to get jobs. We can debate that, and others are more able to debate that better than I am. But nonetheless, there's such an, an eagerness on the part of parents for their children to learn Chinese that uh, Confucius Institute scholars uh, from China were uh, going into K-12 settings uh, without the proper visa regulations. Uh, one way around that um, uh, at the time, this is just a year, a few years ago, two years ago, uh, was then to bring students from these public schools to campus mm. in um, whether this is uh, a reasonable way of working the bureaucracy or whether it cuts against the spirit of what was happening, you have to realize this is an administrative way of thinking about things. So no matter, you know, every, the ministers everywhere do this. So it was a co- another sort of way of collaborating uh, and, and, and teaching younger children uh, Chinese. Now, we can debate whether they really are learning Chinese, uh, what's happening uh, in, in the classrooms, um, even we can debate whether there's a sort of Chinophilia happening, uh, Sinophilia happening through these. Uh, that's not the point of this book. I'm really more interested. What's the logic uh, of, by which right. these educational settings in the U.S. Are, are interested in working with? Right. And I think that, you know, that is sort of uh, an example of sort of the, the duality that these organizations are having to work together in, uh, certainly. Um, but, you know, if we can sort of uh, talk about... Um, who, who are the people actually taking the classes, sitting in the, in, in the classes? Uh, who, who are they, and uh, sort of how do they how do they see themselves? I know you you kind of uh, were perhaps a, a little bit critical on this idea that there was some sort of uh, global citizenship going on with these students, or at least in some aspect. If you want to uh, maybe talk about that. I, I think myself have my eyes opened a bit because from the secondary literature, uh, and certainly from the university admin. Uh, Language. I would have expected more uh, more students interested in in the universities now, not K twelve, but in universities, um, getting their hands on uh, learning Chinese. I was surprised to see in some settings, many settings, I would say, um, the majority of students were were not people who I would have expected uh, enrolling, uh, including. Um, uh, stakeholders in the community involved in the university, administrators themselves enrolling in some case. No, not, uh, there was obviously me, an anthropologist, so that's sort of an unusual kind of a student. I so, um, acknowledge that. Uh, but it was, it was uh, a, a, an interesting conglomeration in some cases of students. There were the, the, the group of extra credit university students was one uh, case, but um, sometimes uh, I, I saw uh, university students who were themselves from China, uh, but were were on um, were, were privately funded students coming to U.S. higher education for degrees within the U.S. Sometimes uh, themselves, I wouldn't say recruited by, but colleagues and friends of other students from China, including in some cases teachers who were teaching uh, in these universities uh, in, in the Confucius Institutes. So. Um, first language Chinese students were on some occasions in the universe in, in the Confucius Institutes themselves. So already knowing China coming to Confucius Institutes uh, to have uh, to watch a movie in Chinese. Right. So you know there was a bit of a sort of social life or to cook Chinese right. in a Chinese cooking class. Uh, that was certainly a, an arena where non. U.S. citizens um, coming from you know, Chinese who are in the U.S. Uh, who are coming to the U.S. to to study would find a social connection mm-hmm. in Confucius Institutes uh, in the area of cooking and cutting and teaching. So some of the uh, very teachers in Confucius Institutes were themselves surrogate uh, teachers. Right. <laughs> they, they they weren't the Confucius Institute teachers. Um, but uh, there was quite a bit of collaboration and crosstalk and exchange between different kinds of Chinese students, whether visiting scholars or um, students on private funds in the U.S. Did you have something particular in mind that? Uh, yeah, I was thinking of um, you know you you specifically you have some interesting characters. There's there's a there's one woman who I think she was she was looking to adopt uh, a Chinese uh, a Chinese I guess baby from from China. So that was sort of her connection into the community, the only way she really knew how. 
Um, and then I think maybe there was some, maybe like a Taiwanese uh, second generation student as well. So, you know, some of these students who, you know, it seems like uh, they're there for their, own, for their own reason, I think, but they're all very different reasons. I think that that's exactly the point, is um, people have a great deal of personal motivation, independent motivation for studying Chinese. It's uh, the image of, of mass campaign and, and brainwashing, which maybe I'm overstating what the secondary, other secondary literature says, but um, people seem to be quite independent and pragmatic in their reasons for studying uh, Chinese in these Confucius institutes. And often it's in uh, places where, or contexts where they don't have um, uh, classrooms that are available at the time in the main university, or it costs money, um, or the university itself isn't even offering those classes. I would um, say that the depth of the Confucius Institute classes, as I've seen them taught in Confucius, you know, Chinese and Confucius mm-hmm. Institutes, seems to be um, different, uh, more narrow than the curricular offerings in university for credit programs. Mm-hmm. So quite a different experience that a student will have in a Confucius Institute learning Chinese history, obviously, and Chinese language than if they were to have been enrolled in in the university setting. But as you, you suggest, the, the social context of, of the Confucius Institute was uh, quite an eye-opener for me in terms of people's reasons uh, socially for coming to the Confucius Institute. Right, right. And I also want to mention one, you mentioned that the, they were sort of pulling in students uh, from the campus. Maybe they were already uh, Chinese students. And, and I think one quoted in saying, when she told you, she said, yeah, of course I have to come because the, we never have enough people who come to these, and they, you know, ask me to come. So, uh, you're, you're, were you seeing sort of a, a dearth of, of students and participants in these programs? And uh, that's what kind of what it seemed like. From- a, a point there is that the Chinese scholar administrators are themselves uh, accountable to their employers, which is not are not U.S. employers. Mm-hmm. They're accountable for the numbers that are brought into Confucius Institute classes. So um, I did not see campaigns to recruit students in the sense of, you know, come to the class because you'll, you'll, you'll get free food. Uh, but there is, a, there is a, a concern about not having sufficient numbers, particularly because uh, the contractual relations between the host university and the university in China often stipulate numbers uh, for enrollees. And there are quid pro quo, pro quo um, uh, aspects to the contract. Um, the, every university's every university negotiates a different contract. Um, it is not an openly negotiated contract. That's key. So the contract that's being negotiated between U.S. host and Chinese university is uh, not subject to the typically. It's not typically subject to the, to the governance procedure of, of other aspects of contracts that, that universities might uh, might negotiate. Uh, there are legal reasons for that, and I'm not a legal scholar, so I won't comment on that. But let me just say that the conditions of the contract um, are often uh, particular to a university and may include numbers of enrollees, not only in U.S. Confucius Institutes, but in U.S. programs that are being hosted in China. So increasingly, you may be aware, and the listeners may be aware too, universities, particularly these publicly funded universities, are looking for new, new sources of revenue. Mm-hmm. Those new sources of revenue have to do with new student tuition monies. China, we all know, many people know this in this area, uh, China uh, is a, a large draw for new recruits to the U.S. universities that provide extra tuition. In addition, universities are teaching particularly English language classes in China, um, and those are revenue-generating programs, Mm -hmm. or I should say universities hope for them to be revenue-generating. U.S. universities hope that they will generate revenue. So sometimes a contract will be negotiated such that the numbers of students coming to a U.S. program in China hosted by the U.S. hosting institution, those numbers need to be a certain amount, and China uh, scholars need to help uh, recruit those students to U.S. programs that then would generate revenue. If you're not meeting those quotas, whether the Confucius Institute side in the U.S. or the U.S. uh, programs that are in China, uh, the contract gets a little bit messy, and so there is pressure to bring people uh, into classes uh, in 
uh, in, in different places, including right. Confucius Institutes. Right, and and I do know that the, you know the Chinese government is funding these, these Confucius Institutes, but but their idea was that they would eventually be sort of self-sustaining after a while from from tuition. Yes, I I never understood the argument for self-sustaining because there are structural reasons why U.S. universities uh, do not actually. See them as integral, mm-hmm. um, a stopgap measure on U.S. campuses. Right. Self-funding. I I didn't hear arguments about that. I know that, it, that those arguments are out there, but I right. didn't see that playing out. It was more simply revenue generating right. for U.S. universities. And I I think that brings us uh, uh, kind of perfectly to, to sort of the the final. Uh, chapter where you you pose uh, the question saving face or selling out uh, as as this Confucius Institute uh, relationship goes for American universities. Um, so if, if you could maybe just explain what the idea of saving face is because it kind of comes up in in these classes that people are learning about um, and, and you know business wise when you're sort of learning Chinese language those kind of things and then how you how you sort of are. are Phrasing that question is for, uh, for Confucius Institutes and American universities. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to, to end with that one. So saving face is a metaphor that I found coming through Confucius Institute programs, particularly around business etiquette classes. Confucius Institutes teach uh, classes on how to conduct business appropriately, the culturally appropriate way of conducting business in China. And one of the typical scenarios for, for hosting that kind of a Confucius Institute class is in a Chinese restaurant. Any, you know, whether it's authentic or American, it doesn't matter, but in a Chinese restaurant where uh, there is a, a PowerPoint um, discussion about how to conduct um, business. And um, it was quite interesting to see the overt teaching of uh, proper business conduct in China. As I say, I'm not a Chinese scholar, although having colleagues there and, and, and traveled there, not extensively, um, the, the way in which business etiquette was taught did resonate with my uh, limited experience um, in China, which is that uh, there's a very sort of proper way in which one uh, engages and does not um, call another colleague out in a business relation in, in, a, in a public way, but rather helps uh, want, want to save Face. And so the idea of saving face in the Chinese phrase is reiterated and, and a featured part of a business etiquette class. My argument in the last chapter is I raise the question for the readers, to what extent is collaborating uh, with um, across continents with uh, Confucius Institutes um, a matter of um, saving face or selling out. The argument that U.S. administrators have uh, that, they, that is offered publicly is generally that these institutes will provide revenue. The revenue doesn't, uh, doesn't follow in, in various ways. Um, so I ask the question throughout the book, what, um, what other reasons might be going on? What, what else is happening here? And I argue that uh, this diplomatic mission is key and it's important. Uh, it's essential, in fact. I think it's an it's a, a essential part of education, and, and that we shouldn't lose sight of that. These are colleagues, and we are colleagues, and we need to work uh, at the level of collegiality. Um, at the same time, the argument that, uh, that Confucius Institutes will teach Chinese and, um, and help to uh, save underfunded humanities programs seems to be a secondary rationalization for something else that's going on. And here I'm, I'm thinking really on the U.S. side. I'm not talking, I'm not a China scholar, I'm not talking about what's going on there because that's not my area. But in the U.S. side, um, there, there's um, a use of Confucius Institutes, including the banquet setting, to bring people around the table to negotiate new things. Mm-hmm. And some of the new things that are being negotiated, as I saw it in this work, around uh, the, the table of business etiquette, the new things that are being negotiated with new scholars and, and collaborations with China are um, opportunities for U.S. universities to convert intellectual property to patentable and licensable and marketable products. The investment from which, as university-owned property, can then be reinvested in U.S. universities. So my question is, um, is uh, in not 
recognizing that and not asking that question, not not saying openly, that's what we're doing here. This, this is this is about bringing new partners together uh, in a market economy, funding new intellectual uh, property, and creating relationships diplomatically and through markets. Um, that that seems to me to be what we need to talk about with regard to Confucius Institutes. And if we don't um, talk about what those various uh, opportunities are and what what is being done in multiple ways besides teaching Chinese, um, then we are in a sense saving face and and not um, and not really working in the, the mode of, of U.S. higher education, which is to think openly um, and analytically about what it is that's going on here. And I think if we begin to do that kind of questioning, we might see that Confucius Institutes, ironically, <laughs> are not all bad and, you know, neither all good. <laughs> so I, it's, I'm just trying to get away from that polarized mm-hmm. um, I, idea of, of the Trojan horse coming right. into U.S. universities. Um, as we began the, the, the conversation here, I think there are reasons that universities take up uh, these institutions and other things, and it has to do, I argue, by the end with new economic opportunities that are not part of revenue generation through uh, um, through. Um, collaborative projects uh, in the area of education, but are about, um, as, as people will say uh, in, in, in university circles, it's about creating new marketable property with colleagues in China uh, whom, with whom we are not, it's not about language study, but it's about intellectual um, collaborations in science and technology in areas that, um, that are translatable mm-hmm. from intellectual ideas into commodities and into property that can be um, owned by universities themselves. And certainly universities in China are also quite interested um, in intellectual property, revenue generation in that way. And um, I I think that's a key part of the the problem or the issue that uh, that I hope we recognize here. Absolutely. And and I think, as I mentioned sort of at the beginning, that that way of viewing Confucius Institutes and the partnership is quite refresh, refreshing, which we haven't really been able to see by uh, a lot of the other analysis uh, on this uh, the, these new ventures. We haven't really seen uh, this, this uh, analysis. Well, I appreciate that because I know that you have written yourself on Confucius Institutes, and I, I thank you very much uh, for sharing your thesis with me um, on on that China's soft power in education, measuring Confucius Institutes. <laughs> Right. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount, so thank you very much. Absolutely, for that. no, it, it was it was uh, my pleasure. Um, if, if if I could, uh, what what's next? What's next for you? Where where uh, where are you researching next, and on your intellectual path? Maybe it's a bit back to the future because um, I find that I really uh, enjoy. Um, the horizons of working with colleagues uh, and friends and collaborators in parts of East Africa. Mm. So I've um, been working recently, initially framing the project as uh, studying Confucius Institutes in East Africa. Um, I'm moving away from studying Confucius Institutes per se to really understanding um, where, how the world education is changing. Um, mm. It's less about North-South development, perhaps not even about East-West development, but about new opportunities that people everywhere face and, and hope for. And so I'm working right now in uh, universities in East Africa, uh, looking at the aspirations uh, and um, opportunities that, that higher education university students, African students have, and how they see their future um, in connection with China. Fantastic. Well, we, we definitely would look forward to that. Uh, so thank you, uh, Amy Stombach, for uh, being here today. And uh, I just want to uh, uh, urge everyone, um, especially if you're interested in China, higher education, uh, Confucius Institutes, uh, please go check out uh, Confucius and Crisis in American Universities, Culture, Capital, and Diplomacy in U.S. Public Higher Education. Uh, thank you very much. Hope you like something. It's a pleasure.